7 of Jen and Millie, where a Gen Xer and a millennial share the strength-based perspective through which they view the world. We are your hosts, Allison and Tess. I appreciate when we come into this space and we say, what have you been experiencing? Mm-hmm. And we find alignment. Yeah. And I'm always grateful for that. I think that's part of the reason that we've been able to come together over the years. But we both operate in space of being coaches. Mm -hmm. And I even get uncomfortable with that word. I prefer the word guide. But we talked a little bit in the green room about some of the things that are coming up in our, our coaching dialogues. And I find it not ironic, probably a little bit more of, I mean, your context might love this, a pattern of behavior that we're noticing that we both kind of notice regardless of the generational differences. But I also think that the problems that arise or the struggles that people arise that come out of those conversations are, are not new, right? So they're like Mm -hmm. generations of struggle. And yet we're in the space of being the coach or the guide to walk somebody through that. So I feel like I benefit from your coaching and always have in these dialogues, but also in your ability to, and the camaraderie and the trust that you help me to call things out as you see them. Hmm. And we all need people to walk in that journey with us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And I think it's, one of the connections that that we kind of made in discussing I wouldn't say I I don't think I function as much in like a coaching capacity but in a mentorship capacity and a formal teacher professor capacity which is odd (laughs) um but is seeing the ways in which Gen Z's who mostly I work with just like say it like it is and name what they're seeing and I really appreciate that honesty that connection to say I'm seeing this are you seeing this This is what I'm struggling with this with this is what I'm struggling with excuse me have you struggled with this as well and I feel like there's just a lot of uh, a lot more of an ability to be honest and open about struggles and about what people and what you're going through and um, so I think I've noticed that a lot And I I think when you think about the overarching structure of, like, why do we have meetings? Why do we have um, the agendas that we put together? It's our hope in a meeting that people will be honest. Yeah. Yet, I think that's one of the hardest things to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we all walk a fine line between how do we deliver a strength-based focus while also being real. Mm-hmm. And, um, the dialogues that I've had recently with coaching, with my coaching clients and also with the people that I'm lucky enough to call my friends and family, mm-hmm. there's just been a, a couple things that have popped up. And I wondered if some of those were popping up for you. One in particular is imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome in my definition, I don't have one in front of me. I probably should have done that before I got here, but I would For me, what it refers to is the voice in my head that says, who do you think you are, young lady? And I think whenever I come into a space of a definition of role or a definition of expectations, I might get in my head or my narrative, 
of not being qualified. Mm. So whether that's being um, a great mom, whether that's being a fabulous sister, all the way to being director of engagement for a nonprofit, I can get into the headspace of, um, I'm not qualified to do this job. Why would someone think that I am deserving of the role or capable of doing it? And imposter syndrome really can trap people because not only does that lack of confidence get in their way, they're so busy contemplating how they're not qualified that they can't even aim their talent towards the goal or the task at hand. Imposter syndrome is something that I've had come up lately in a few dialogues, and I thought it might be a good conversation for us to have here. Yeah, agreed, agreed. I think uh, there's a lot of, again, I should have data in front of me, I don't have data in front of me. There are patterns around who, I, I think everybody at any point in time probably, everyone at any point in time has probably felt it to a certain extent, right, at some point in their life. But there are definitely patterns. Women tend to hold imposter syndrome much more regularly than men because of the expectations and the fact that the workplace is normed on male performance, right, um, on maleness. Um, younger people tend to hold it more than you know, people that are more seasoned in a certain position or workplace just because it's like they have all this experience and this knowledge and all of this training. Um, I feel like generationally there is shifting though around that, right? Like the millennial generation mind feeling that a whole lot and Gen Z busting out of that a little bit to say, I'm not going to be beholden to your norms or your expectations. Um, and I'm okay with that kind of an F the system kind of mentality a little bit. Um, and so it's, I think it's interesting to see the ways in which it shows up for different people. But I also think there are a lot of patterns in what's happening in the world, the rapid change that's occurring and the ways in which this phenomenon of a mismatch between my internal self and my role or the position that I'm in, right? Of not feeling good enough, not feeling like I measure up, not feeling like I have the training or the expertise or the talent to be successful in this. Um, um, it's interesting just to see how that's that's manifesting. And I think some of the uh, Gen X and older are experiencing it in the realm of technology mm-hmm. and feeling sure. like I'm going to not have the same level of expertise or ease and that can put us in a place of imposter syndrome when it comes to tech also uh, and i i've been having lots of dialogue um recently with friend groups in my age group regarding midlife and mid 40s and all the fun things that come with that and the feelings of invisible there's a really Mm. great grace and frankie episode Um, i don't know if you watched grace and frankie but i dearly appreciated that show. Um, Grace, who is Jane Fonda's uh, character, is trying to check out at a grocery store and the clerk looks right past her and helps a younger female. Mm. And Grace just explodes and is basically screaming, do you not see me? And I think that in dialogues that I've had recently, not just with coaching clients or with teams that I work with, but with some of my friends in my generation, there's a feeling of 
am I still significant? Mm -hmm. And how do I matter? And the, the us Gen Xers are like rockers. Like we feel like we should be relevant forever. And we're experiencing some of those things like the, the fact that it's harder for us to drive at night. It's a legit thing. Got this rocker, badass Gen Xer who doesn't want to drive at night because now all of a sudden I have, you know, issues with with night vision that I didn't used to have, or I can't go anywhere without these readers. It it's these feelings of I'd say aging, along with the reality of the things I used to be able to do with ease are mm. harder for me. Mm. And so am I actually even in that imposter sort of brain space as to what I could do before and feeling mm-hmm. like the loss of skill has um, come part of that. So I think it's it's such a great thing to ponder when it comes to the generational differences, but also with strengths. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel like woo when below the line can fall very quickly into imposter syndrome based on the opinions of others. Yeah. I can imagine that a strength like maximizer, um, might feel at times, uh, if I can't get to a standard of excellence, do I feel like I'm faking it to make it, which can lead to that kind of imposter syndrome. But, um, I think for our listeners, we have such a variety of, generational differences and also strengths Mm -hmm. a great question to ponder absolutely absolutely I know I think um you know I think any strength could really manifest in the context of imposter syndrome especially when it's below the line I mean my first thought went to went to thinking themes and all the thinking themes that I have and overthinking my own internal dialogue compared to my behavior compared to the expectations of a role or a position um, and how that could easily lead one to to feel like they have to rely on external sources in order to be assured that they're capable of doing the job I mean Mm -hmm. not even just like in a in a professional sense to I'm like personally right like something goes wrong in my friendships or my relationships I go to Google <laughs> I go seek out I go seek out like therapists on TikTok you know like or Instagram reels like to say what do they have to say about things like this like how can I repair this or how can I work to to fix this rather than believing and trusting my own instincts in terms of um in terms of how to navigate a particular situation. Um, so I think it goes beyond just uh, um, beyond just like a professional role and even personally. Um, it reminds me there's a, and this is like a professional example, but there's like a voiceover that's going around Instagram reels. Now I'm not on TikTok, but I'm sure to originate to TikTok. I see everything on Instagram because I'm a millennial. Uh, but there's this, this, there's this like Instagram that's like, uh, like or this this audio of this gal that's like crying and said I girl boss too hard and now I have a job and I have responsibilities <laughs> and I have to show up to work every day I girl boss too hard and um I it makes me think of that it's like number one the fact that we even have things like girl boss and slay girl slay and even these like ideas of like to show up in the professional sense, we have to boost you up, right? Like we have to gender the concept of leadership 
because leadership is normed on maleness, right? But also this idea that in order to continue in that space, you have to continue to perform, right? And performance in and of itself, if you feel like you have to perform, there's something innately then, I think like implicitly behind that idea that you have to keep performing as girl boss, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. Is this idea that it's not naturally a part of who you are, right? Which Mm -hmm. then gets you into the cycle of imposter syndrome, that I got to keep showing up and I got to keep putting this face on and I got to keep in the sociologist Irving Goffman, right? Like put my mask on, my preservation of everyday self in society, right? Like Mm -hmm. I got to show up in a certain way because that's what's expected of someone in this position, right? Which I think is then imposter syndrome, right? But it also begs to the question of these sorts of conversations we have where what does it look like to be your like radically, totally, authentically awesome self? And how do you show up in a position like that as your total authentically awesome self when society, the workplace, the industry, your coworkers, even yourself puts these expectations as to how you ought to show up? which aren't going to align perfectly with who you authentically want to show up as in that space. And I will tie that directly to what you just said by being influenced by Instagram. So I also find as a battle, uh, I have a, a lovely coaching client who he and I recently, I said, what is the most surprising thing that you've had to deal with as a manager's as a manager and managers have it bad. This is my new opinion. Mm -hmm. Managers have it bad because (laughs) we don't actually have a class at the, whatever your field of study is, that says, here's how to navigate the peoples. And he said, I cannot believe the things I have to deal with, with people. Mm -hmm. And I said, like what? He goes, like, you name it. So we had this really lovely dialogue and what I've, noticed about in those conversations is that there's so many leadership styles out there that you think you should fall into one of them or follow this method that to be authentically your own leader is really, really hard. First of all, you don't know what the hell you're doing. And secondly, you've got a bunch of people who are saying they do. Mm-hmm. So The caution that I have found recently is what you and I know to be the flavor of the week. Yep. And, you know, I've watched myself sometimes when I I mention Brene Brown a lot. I've I've picked up on a couple eye rolls recently. And I'm like, oh, are we tired of Brene? Now we're tired of Brene. So I've noticed a couple eye rolls about Brene. I stay very close to home with my Liz Gilbert adoration and her style of creativity. But I feel like, nope, there's someone new that is influencing and it's a different way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So it reminded me the other day of how, and you, I don't know if you'll remember this or not. This, I feel like this is one of those pop culture things, but I grew up in a generation that either eggs were good for you or they were bad for you. And it was like a conundrum. It truly was. It was mm-hmm. d- yes on the yolk. No. Do I do only egg whites? Mm-hmm. And it's constantly changing. Mm-hmm. So I just decided uh, I'm going to do my own thing and I actually like the eggs. <laughs> so I'm going to have the eggs. That is what I feel like we have with so many 
strong opportunities for influencers. What I share with people, and I will share here on the podcast, you have a self-help book within you waiting to be written. You know your best recovery strategies. You know your best, best practices. And if you wrote them all down, someone will probably pay money for that wisdom that you have. Mel Robbins talks about this three, two, one concept of getting out of bed. That's a strategy. I, I mean... Everybody has sort of a different view. I'm really crazy in love with um, Andrew Huberman and the Huberman podcast. I don't know if you've heard any of that stuff. He's an absolute brain science nerd, uh, Stanford professor who his life mission is to get all of the information that he has at his fingertips out to the public and get people like me to better understand how to apply best practices for well-being. That's awesome. He's currently someone that I'm fangirling about if he told me eggs were bad I might think about not eating eggs again (laughs) so I recognize that because we have all of these methods now of receiving information and receiving what may feel like um, great leadership we aren't going to really know until we walk in it because if we can't do it authentically, it will feel like imposter syndrome mm-hmm. and it may show up to others as, as lacking authenticity. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So imposter syndrome has come up a bunch for me. And unfortunately, I feel like I just read an article um, called Middle Managers Have It Bad. And it was all about the stress of not just doing your role and knowing your role, but managing people and I've I've paid close attention to some of the research around that and some of Gallup's research around that and engagement how everything happened during COVID we're still going to see for many years I think those effects but um it's if we as leaders and I can own this I've experienced imposter syndrome many times and Mm -hmm. I'm considered a leader in a couple of the roles that I have me walking in that it should be testimony to the fact that most people that are part of that world that I exist in are going to experience it too. So how do we have real conversations about it? And then if we're in the capacity of a mentor or a coach or a guide or a manager, how do we own it Mm -hmm. so that we create a space of transparency to say, yeah, I exist in this too. Right. And I think that's one of the key elements of the definition of imposter syndrome is it's like this mismatch between your internal conception of self and the external expectations. And so if you don't give voice to it, if you're a manager and you're trying, you know, you, you like have to name it, right? You have to name (laughs) that you have imposter syndrome. Like that's the only way you know. And I, it, I, it makes me think of and like hearken back to everybody when you did new mentor training, everyone was like, well, I'm just not going to be able to train the way that Allie trains. And it's like they see how you're presenting yourself in that context. And they're like, I'm never going to be able to measure up. Not realizing your own internal dialogue of like, okay, yeah, I got this. But it took such a long time to build up my confidence, to feel comfortable, to get into my own groove when it came to training, um, you know, so on and so forth. That I just, it's, that's the key especially when you're in a position of power and you're wanting to lead in a vulnerable way by naming imposter syndrome, you have to actually 
just leading vulnerably is not going to communicate that you have imposter syndrome. Like it needs to be named because someone, whoever is the recipient, right? The manager, the person that you're coaching, whatever that you have leadership over um, or with, they are looking at your external behaviors. They don't see that mismatch that you have because it's a mismatch between the internal dialogue or the internal sense of self conception of self and then the external presentation of it they're just seeing the external presentation not recognizing the internal dialogue that's going on and so if we want to be vulnerable we have to actually name it as imposter syndrome and i think this is where i would say i think there is such a gendered difference here that there is a willingness and a more of an appreciation for women who name imposter syndrome. But I think so much of the dialogue around imposter syndrome is around how women carry it. Excuse me. So I wonder what it would be like for a male leader to acknowledge imposter syndrome. Well, I'm clearly not qualified to answer that, but I hope some of our listeners do. One in particular that I'm, I'm thinking of, but it, it creates risk. Yeah. It's a giant risk. Do you think about what Gallup tells us followers need hope, stability, trust, compassion. Mm -hmm. When you do that as a leader, I mean, to me, I think when you are vulnerable and real and say, I'm going to own this imposter syndrome. I mean, I come into this space thinking, how in the hell is it that I am part of a podcast? And we all know it's because you do all of it. And I just show up here. Thank you. But it, also, I think, why does anybody listen? I mean, truly, like, I own that. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of Sean. I mean, Sean's going to be my close to, closest example of, you know, watching a young leader. He would see that move as total risk. Yep. Because I think... And I love this activity. I've been doing this with uh, with teams recently. When you look at those four, you know, yeah. what strengths do you feel like naturally mm-hmm. demonstrate these? And it's so interesting how people come to, like I would assume relator means trust, but sometimes people put relator under um, stability. And they could go anywhere, right? Yeah. And ideally they do. But then I ask, if you were to name right now, what you feel like your constituents need most, which of these four would you choose? And when I do it with a team, it's always fascinating to me to see, are they on the same level? Do they all see the same word as a, a need? Or do they, do they have differences and, and where does that come from? Mm. When we're dealing with things like imposter syndrome, you know, I'm not, we can't, none of us can know how to do a role until we get into it. So when exactly. I was teaching new mentor training all of the time, I would certify trainers and say, the best training is when it comes from your authentic voice. Mm-hmm. You, I don't want you to train like me. I want you to train like you yep. because people can know and sense that. And honestly, I think that's probably why people listen to this hmm. is that there's an expectation because we've set that standard that we are going to be real here. Some of my realest moments have been in this space. 
I cringe listening back, but I think that's what we hope people will glean from it is a willingness to have real conversations about real issues. I'm curious for you, some of those moments of imposter syndrome that you, you could name it or feel it, or maybe you didn't at the time, but I, you owned the phrase professor, by the way, earlier. I kind of cringed at it. I don't know that I owned it fully. Internally, it felt very odd. Um, Stop a second there. Tell me about the word odd. Internally, it felt odd. Um, imposter syndrome, right? It felt like there was dissonance between carrying that title and who I am. Even though it's so who I am, right? Even though I love it. It's like that I've always... And I feel like... So this is a good example. And this is one that like came to mind when you said, like, tell me examples of when you felt imposter syndrome. It's definitely that. I think... I don't know that there are many times and many professions in which there is such a quick and drastic shift. Like think about an industry or an organization, Mm. right? You have the employees, you have entry level positions, you have several levels of middle management, then you're up to executives, C-suite, the board, right? There's a pretty structured hierarchy. Universities, yes, there's a very structured hierarchy, but in the classroom, there are two levels, maybe three if you have a TA, right? There are two levels of power. You are a, you're the one who holds power, you're the professor, or you're the student where you lack the power, right? Like there are two levels. And my entire life, I have been at one level. And I still technically am at that level. But in other contexts, I'm at the other level, right? Like it was just a flip of a switch, right? And so that's where, like, even though I've been building up to it, even though I've been teaching informally in other contexts, even though I've always, and you called me forever, Professor Tess, right? Like, even though it's something I'm working towards, there are not, I don't know of anything super comparable to that quick of a flip of a switch, right? Except in the context of education, where you are a student, maybe you spend time as a student teacher, not in academia, but maybe in K-12, and then you become the teacher, right? Then you are the one responsible for everything. So that's where I just wonder contextually also how imposter syndrome plays out based Mm. on the role, on what it looks like to to be in a place of leadership, to be in a place mm-hmm. of power or management mm-hmm. when you haven't been in the past. So, anyway. well, uh, um, of course, my brain went right to what what could be some other examples of this, and I would love for our listeners to to think about that. The quickness in which you move from student to teacher. Also, there's a big part of this related to your strengths. Of course, your learner loves being the student. Yeah. And that's what makes you a rock star professor. That is what makes you a rock star professor is you are in the learning with. Mm-hmm. The greatest teachers are in the learning with. Yeah. So you're not talking at, you're not teaching at, you're mm-hmm. learning with. The first thing that came to mind, if I was to think of something for me in my life that was a very quick and for sure imposter syndrome, it was parenthood. 
I mean, it's a good one. Yep. <laughs> I again say many times, Lauren was basically raised by wolves. I mean, <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing, and I, I does any just, parent though? Right? Well, does anybody yeah. first time I, I'm parent? Gonna, I'm going to guess a lot of parents out there will say no, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't want to say so. Mm. So I remember thinking about like really careful with the questions I asked of the seasoned mothers that I knew. My mother-in-law, my moms, my godmother, Aunt Meg. I remember Lauren was... Mike and I got the stomach flu really bad. Lauren was an infant. I did not want to tell anybody. I called my Aunt Meg, who's my godmother, and said, like, we're so sick we can't even take care of her. And Aunt Meg's like, we got her. I didn't tell, like, the moms. Hmm. And, you know, I think about some of the things that I leaned on other moms who I trusted who also were vulnerable with me. I think about the mom's group that I had where we were to bring a salty snack, a sweet snack, an adult beverage, and we would sit around in an apartment complex, like rec room, and just talk about how horrific it was to parent. (laughs) And I leaned on them, you know, and they didn't really probably know what they were doing either, but there was that sacred space of... Oh, you're an imposter too? Mm. Uh, thank you for welcoming me into this mom's group that's actually a bunch of us don't know what we're doing at, yep. in middle management. Mm-hmm. We yep. don't know what we're doing. Yep. But I think, you know, Tess, I hadn't really thought about that as to how quickly. What I'm noticing is, at least with the clients that I work with, I don't see a big difference in whether they've been in the role a short time Mm -hmm. or a longer period of time. I I have some clients that have been in their roles a long time and, and feel, do I really know what I'm doing? Yeah. I think the other part to that is clarity in outcome. Yeah. hundred percent. So as a manager, what I would want to have are happy people who have high well-being, but that's based on my strengths and my values. Mm -hmm. So I may be feeding imposter syndrome to my followers unintentionally because I am listening through and gifting out my leadership style through my strengths, through my values. Mm -hmm. My kids probably think that my standard of their excellence is around relationships and heart. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that if they don't meet that criteria that I set before them that I would have any less expectations, but I can see how I may have created that. Um, Mm -hmm. and the kind of mom that I am may create for them a vision of the kind of parent they think that, or maybe it's the kind of parent they don't want to be. I'm sure that's the case, but you know, this is so prevalent, but we don't talk about it with the sense Mm -hmm. of it's okay. And I love that you just named the quickness in which you've had to step into something where there are probably pieces and parts to the role that there's no, there's no class on. There's no, No. it's the same thing like management. You have to deal with the people. 
Yeah. You have students. Yeah, 100%. Like, I have 30 people looking at me every week, twice a week, and just like, oh, okay, like, I have to have something prepared, and I have to be able to evaluate that you've gained knowledge, and, like, there's no roadmap for that. I mean, I was given, and now this is, I am prepping for the fall where I'm going to teach another class, a different class at a different university, and both of the times, like, I'm expecting to walk in, and they're, like, this adjunct who's a PhD student, like, so it hasn't taught really before. Like, I'm expecting, like, hey, here's a good book. Here's some recommendations. Like, this would be important to cover for this kind of course. This would be something that's not as important. Um, both of my onboardings at these universities, I've gotten a couple examples of previous syllabi. That's, that's it. That's how I was prepared for both of these courses. Like, here's some examples, and here's what the course is named like and here's the course description and that's that's what i got right and so So what's your measurement what's your measurement or is it that they grab you after class and say i got it i mean what's your measurement that are you i mean you grade them yeah i grade them I, I mean, so I've created like rubrics. I have really transparent grading. Like I, I teach based on how I would want to be taught. And so very explicit expectations, like, but all these things is my measurement for them. That's not my measurement of, of me that I'm doing an adequate job, right? That's the thing where like, when you first said, what's your measurement? I'm like, oh yeah, I have plenty of measurements for them, but nobody's measuring me. Nobody's ensuring that I am doing what I'm supposed to be doing, right? That I'm holding class twice a week, that I'm, you know, I'll probably get a slap on the wrist if I don't submit final grades, but nobody's checking up on me, making sure that I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I just like, it's mind boggling to me, like the lack, like there's a center for teaching and learning that I could go to for support, right? They reach out, they have webinars, they have, it's not like I'm unsupported, but it's it's mind-boggling to me, like the lack. And I just think about it in the context of managers. Managers are not given a roadmap. No. Like managers are just put into a position of management. And then there you go, right? They get their own performance review perhaps, but, you know. And there are a variety of influencers who are telling managers how to lead in a lot of different capacities. So you don't have somebody that, like, even when I did student teaching, they come in and watch me. Are you kidding me? Yeah, K-12. In order for me K- to teach kindergarten. K-12 schools, 100%. K-12 schools, like, you get, you, you're taught for four years on how to teach. Like, here's proper pedagogy. Here's the learning measure. They don't do any of that for college. Are you kidding me? They're like, oh, you have mastery in this specific topic? You must be able to then teach on it, but not actually give you any instruction on how to teach. And that's why I'm like doing all of this, because I want to be a great college professor. Like I want to be a great instructor, but that's not the litmus test. Like that's not the litmus test. It's do you have mastery in your very specific niche subject of knowledge? And if you do, then you, yeah, you can teach. (laughs) So I think about, I mean, you are just the shining example of integrity. Because this is what you're thinking about. Right? Yeah. Without a measurement on you. In place, you have your own. Yeah. I'll get student evaluations. 
But like, I don't, apart from using those for when I potentially apply for a position, like I'm not going to get a review from the university as an adjunct professor. Like, is she doing what she's supposed to be doing <laughs> to Gosh, renew? Even, like, even as a sub, I had the principal pop in when I was, you know, seven for PE and music. <laughs> I have to, I had to turn in my syllabus when it was done. That was it. That's all the contact I've had with the department. <laughs> it's crazy. It's mind-boggling. But okay, so I, I will say that I think one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot, both professionally and personally, is when it comes to imposter syndrome, when it comes to, I think imposter syndrome is really closely tied to perfectionism. And we talked a little bit about this in the green room. It's a closely tied to a meritocracy and a meritocratic based system that says you are worth the value of your production, of what you give, of what you can produce, of what you create, so on and so forth, right? And so because that's the litmus test, which we can have a whole nother episode about the fallacy of the meritocracy. <laughs> but, um, but because that's the litmus test, like the work that we produce or the work that we do, so much of, I think, our identities get wrapped up into producing successfully. And that's where the pressure to perform at a perfect level comes from. And so... I have realized I don't talk about this in this way a lot, but I, I'm going to strengths about myself for a second. And I rave on my context. I love my context. But my context got me into very severe trouble the other day because it has been functioning in the basement. And I don't talk about context in the basement a lot, really ever. And my context... And this was like a personal situation, but it also has been happening professionally. My context, right, is this file cabinet of previous situations that mm -hmm. I go to and I mm -hmm. filter through right. them to situate where I currently am. And so I'm filtering through my previous situations when I am told, like, can't you just breathe? Like, can't you just let it go and realize that past situations don't always inform present circumstances right and so i'm trying to explain my context in like a really like clinical way like that's not how context functions context is always looking at past examples right and so i'm like defensive of my context because mm -hmm. i love it right mm -hmm. but right. then when i sat back to reflect on it i was like yes that is the below the line basement function of context right and i think that's a lot of thinking themes right we think that the thinking themes can function to help give us give like imposter syndrome confidence right to right. like validate yes but it also right can hold back and perpetuate imposter syndrome and especially with things like intellection with context with input mm -hmm. um even analytical right that's thinking through the causes and effects the situation that happened and is over processing like is there a way i could have done this better to achieve a perfect result is there a way i could have manipulated the situation i could have given different inputs i could have inserted different variables i could have inserted different resources in here to arrive at a better solution um when in reality, thinking like that is exhausting and overwhelming. And all it does is confirm 
the the imposter syndrome that you have to begin with mm-hmm. rather than actually be liberating from the mindset so this idea of what are your measurables i think is really important because imposter syndrome is this disconnect between the internal dialogue and conception mm-hmm. of self and the external mm-hmm. behavior and i know we've talked about this before it's about expectations and that so many of us because of our heavy inner critic we have such higher expectations of ourselves than the actual expectations are. And so finding what those measurables are to see this is what success looks like and then aligning your own work to that measurable instead of whatever lofty measurable you have in your own head. And that's hard because something like the example of being an adjunct right now, something like the example of like my relationship, there aren't measurables. Right? There aren't over-discussed measurables. Or they could easily fluctuate depending on who it, whose concept it is. Mm-hmm. So I had a really beautiful example of being called out for my input being out of balance. And I'm lucky. It's a colleague who I have trust with where he can do that. But what I, I found in that description, my input, when it is oper- if it's overextending okay so below the line operating below the line because it's being overused Mm -hmm. when I get too much information it's like a trap door to my number six of achiever Mm. so it starts to go below the line and then achievers like oh I've been sitting over here on the bench waiting for you to use me my one executing theme in my 10 would you please call me up (laughs) and then achiever (laughs) believes I must do something with this information And because we are a society that wants productivity and outcomes that look like built widgets over here, and that's what we measure, I'm, I feel stuck because I'm not producing. I don't feel like I'm producing anything if all I'm doing is thinking, when actually the best of me is my strategic thinking themes. Yeah. So when I can build strategy and I can articulate that strategy, but you've got a, a theme like input who's just being overfed information, trap doors, achiever just jumps right up and achievers like, oh, I must do something with this information. And that's where I get in massive trouble hmm. because it isn't honoring the strategic thinking themes. It gets in the productivity what widget will come of this? What did you actually produce, Allison? That's where value is. And my inner critic gets completely out of line because the best of me is in those thinking themes. Mm -hmm. The trap door to thinking I have to do something when I get too much info, it was a great call out. And I had to sit with that for a bit. Again, Mm -hmm. as we talked about this many times, being open to feedback. But I think outcomes and naming those, there's so, there's so much specific, you know, the word I want specificity. Mm-hmm. There's that has to be an internal dialogue of us naming and what does success look like for me? Yep. That is massive work to avoid imposter syndrome yeah. because we have viewpoints of this is what a manager looks like. This is what a mom looks like. This is what a professor looks like. Mm -hmm. And the more that we have influencers who feed, this is what leadership looks like. It makes it very difficult for people to be authentic and actually in their strengths and talent Mm -hmm. in their own way. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I guarantee you, you are teaching from a place of integrity, but from the viewpoint, I think that's the best thing those, that the group that you have, the students you have, they are getting the best possible learning experience because you are in it as a student. Mm -hmm. I just think you couldn't have a better professor than someone who is in it as a student because you're with the genius and the beauty of learning, mm -hmm. not teaching necessarily, but the learning. Yeah. You know what I mean by the difference? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And you do I, that so well, but like, that's, your, that's why I've been calling you Professor Tess since you put the lab coat on. <laughs> and you want to be in the, you're just like experiencing it with the, the person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I talk about one of my, one, you know, when I apply to jobs in the future, uh, you have to write a teaching statement, a teaching philosophy. And right now I am testing out a teaching philosophy that is about sharing power search institute that is about co-creating and co-meaning and co-learning together in the classroom there is inherently a power differential in the classroom and so finding ways in order so students right feel empowered to learn on their own rather than simply receive information and process that information, right? So, um, so that's been interesting. And I, you know, in conversations with people, uh, with many people who have different beliefs on learning styles, it's been really interesting to say, like, no, I go to a college class to like listen to the professor lecture. And so, to kind of try and find that balance right of being trusted as the expert quote unquote right definitely not an expert at this point in time but also wanting students to be empowered in their own learning and their own lines of inquiry has been kind of an interesting way to balance is been trying to find an interesting balance if that makes sense like i 100 percent, i'm with you right but there are also then expectations of the system that is higher education where you're expected to sit and a professor you expect a classroom to be like a professor lectures to you on their expertise right and so trying to find and set expectations differently for what a learning environment looks like rather than a lecture environment has been a little bit of a, I mean, the class has been great, but it's been, I've just had like lots of interesting dialogues about that. Right. And that's you been, mm -hmm. you said earlier, you teach the way that you want to be taught. Mm -hmm. For sure. But I also recognize that not everyone likes to be taught in the same way. And that's where my individualization can get into the basement. Right. It's like, like even today, for example. So I taught today and we were talking about, um, people who have been sexually minoritized um, by power structures. Um, so LGBTQIA plus community, uh, trans folk in the US. Um, so we listened to a clip of an NPR um, hidden brain episode. And it was like an NPR story that took part of the hidden brain episode as a story. And it's like a whole podcast episode, but it was about the massive shift in public opinion and public support for same-sex marriage and how that has led to like it was the 1988 general social survey that reported 11 percent of the united states in 1988 11 percent of the united states supported same-sex marriage right 
And then the 2018, right? So we're talking 20, 30, you know, was that 30 years after? Mm-hmm. Um, 69%. Nearly seventy percent. Like it's it's one of the most dramatic shifts in public opinion um, that has ever been recorded in the general social survey. Right, this huge survey on the United States, pe- you know, people in the United States, American views, opinions, mm-hmm. behaviors, actions, so on and so forth. So, so the, the way too much context, <laughs> context of the face, so way too much background for this one example. But I usually give. I us- I'll show video clips every once in a while in class. And you've got the images. You I always put on closed captioning so they could read along with it. So this was an NPR story. So it was a it was a radio story, right? So it's just a listen. There's no visuals with it. So me being me, because of my high individualization, I'm like, well, I'm going to scroll down because there's a transcript of it. So I'm going to follow and manually scroll for seven minutes while they listen to this so that they can read along if they choose to do so rather than just listen. Which, like, yes, a positive thing. Yeah, very. Because the other topic I hoped we would get to, and we get to it in one of our next, is the biggest struggle we have as leaders is communication. And it's clarity of communication. So we all hear different messaging. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. So to, to be an active listener, level one is where I'm listening to respond. Level two is where I'm like actually feeling what you're saying to me. And level three is I'm noticing everything else that's happening around me. Mm-hmm. To listen in a meeting or in class at level three active listening is relatively impossible. Mm-hmm. You've got to be showing up 100% your best self. No distractions, no stress. You did not have an issue getting your car parked. You did not have an issue finding the classroom. You did not have an issue hearing the material. And you also don't have other things on your mind. So when you are providing the transcript plus the sound, like you're, all, you're doing everything you can to ensure the accurate messaging. I think I may have mentioned this, but I did this recently with the team. Mary had a little lamb. Everybody knows that nursery room, right? So I say it, and you, you already go in your head, mm-hmm. any nursery room. Yep. I then say, okay, Tess, what are one or two takeaways from Mary had a little lamb? You want me to respond? Yeah, yeah. Oh, um... Takeaways. Takeaways? Takeaways? Um, the fleece was white as snow. Okay. And if you were to go and tell somebody in just a one sentence what happened, what would you, what would you say? I would, like, recite. I would, like, the whole recite thing. it. Yeah. The whole thing? Okay. So your leadership style, that's what you heard, and you would articulate the whole thing. For others, their leadership style is, wow, they had fun at school. That's the big takeaway, that they followed her, they had fun at school, depending on your strengths. I've got a leader with high deliberative analytical. He said, risk, who takes animals to school? Did anyone think through this? So like your takeaways from clearly a few sentences the telephone game of I'm articulating this information back to the team. So today you give me that example. You know what I heard first and foremost is your reference to Hidden Brain. You love that podcast. I do. <laughs> that is, so if I was to take one takeaway of what I really heard, I love when you reference it because you like light up in all the ways because you, lo- you love podcast. that podcast. Okay. So that's kind of, mm-hmm. I, I know I didn't do a great job getting to the point of that, but 
We have to be in such a present place to be actively listening, let alone what we take and gift out with that information. So as a leader or as a teacher, we're constantly thinking about what do people actually hear? Mm -hmm. In the content that you give, what do they actually walk away with? And at least in my experience as a coach, I'm hearing a lot of, I didn't know communication would be this hard. Mm, it seems yeah. like everything is clear, but no one seems to get the same message. Yeah. And that's a good reminder, right? And I think, especially based on people's strengths, that I think I something I've really been learning lately is that because of my strengths, I hear something once and I'm okay. Like I hear something once and I run with it. I'm like, you don't need to tell me twice. I got the info. I'm good. Right. But in the context of leadership, so I keep doing this. I'm like, we have our final paper coming up due in a few weeks. It's like reviewing the expectations regularly. I'm like, okay, we've gone over this one page online that details all the explanations of the paper, but we're going to keep doing it so that it's the expectations are really clear. How you're evaluated is really clear like you know what to expect in terms of how you'll be evaluated and what I'm expecting from you in terms of a final assignment. And so like this reality that I don't feel like I should need the information's up there. We've gone over it in class once, but this is even a helpful reminder of like clarity in communication isn't just clarity in the actual words you use. It's also repetition, right? Because that's acknowledging the reality that not everyone is in the capacity for level three listening right. when you present it the first time. Right. But we don't want to take the time to do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other piece, Tess, that's a clear example of how you walk in integrity in your role as a professor. You want your students to succeed. Yeah, for sure. That's your, again. <laughs> I feel like that's pretty standard, but you're right. I guess not every professor is cared about, you know, cares about that as an expectation. You are setting them up for success by reminding and I think that that's the piece when it comes to you know strengths awareness imposter syndrome so if I'm operating above the line below the line if I'm operating in or out of imposter syndrome I may not have the clarity of the message that I need to be able to gift out to all of these magical humans who are listening this would be a great example of it I'm trying to do the Mary Had a Little Lamb thing and clearly not going the right way. I'm, I'm like, I have, sorry, I had no idea where you were going. I didn't get it. I'm trying to say Mary Had a Little Lamb in my head because I didn't remember all of it. That like, is the key piece that I've found when I've done this activity. So what ends up happening is, so I say this to a leader, what are your takeaways? And then go deliver this to your team. They go back to the team and say, hey, you know that Mary Had a Little Lamb nursery rhyme. These are my takeaways they aren't listening to any of it because they're reciting it in their head. They're not listening to any of the actual exercise. And that's why I do a lot of this check for understanding when I teach. And what did y'all hear me say? I mean, I'm sure everybody thinks, what are we at kindergarten level, Allison? But repeat back to me what you heard me say. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's a reminder to me that I'm not communicating it at all. Mm-hmm. This podcast is a bu- brilliant example of that. I listen back. I don't finish sentences. And I have a track that is an absolute figure eight disaster train wreck of trying to communicate information. And yet, I think I've said what needs to be said. 
I've, I've learned that the hard way in this space <laughs> that what I say, what I say can be heard many different ways than the way that I meant mm. it. Yeah. And this is, this is why it's we have attorneys. Reminder. This is why we have attorneys. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. So to wrap up our conversation, I think a uh, takeaways or action items for listeners would be to reflect on imposter syndrome. You know, in what places have you felt it? Are you currently feeling it? Are there certain contexts or roles in which you feel it more than others within your life? Which of your strengths do you feel like really feed into that? Are there strengths that are below the line or in the basement that are really kind of maintaining and perpetuating your feelings of imposter syndrome? And then three, one of the antidotes to imposter syndrome is ensuring that there's very clear measures of success, very clear indicators and expectations of what success will look like. And so if you feel like you don't have those in that context, spend the time to create them. Could even be really simple. Use the SMART goal framework as a starting point if you feel like you need somewhere to start. Um, to create some short-term and long-term goals for that role, to say what would it look like to be successful and then how can I match my internal beliefs with these external expectations that have now been set. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. Okay. Okay. Alrighty. Well, with that being said, I want to thank everyone for tuning in to episode 107 of Jen and Millie. If you enjoyed today's conversation, consider sharing this episode with a friend. To interact with us and share your responses to the questions we pose, the easiest way to do that is by giving us a follow on Instagram at Jen and Millie. That's at G-E-N-N-A-N-D-M-I-L-L-I-E. Until next time.